And chapter 11 is actually the beginning of a bit of encouragement that the Lord brings their way. Up until this point, the Lord has been chastening very severely their impenitent heart, their rebellion, their idolatry, their adultery that they had been committing against Him. Remember that Hosea had begun this book by talking about his adulterous wife, and he used it as an illustration uh, to show that that's exactly how God felt with regard to his people Israel. And so Hosea became uh, a really living illustration. I wouldn't want to have traded places with him for for anything, but uh, God used him, and he uh, is using him here in this last few verses or chapters to encourage the people as well as continuing some of that chastening uh, that is still going to continue. He's not completely done with that, but interspersed with the judgments that are going to be meted out, he also gives them hope. He has done that in the past, in previous chapters, but uh, this particular area of the Scripture, the last three four chapters, he's going to be focusing more and more on the fact that they are not completely eliminated. And... He wants to encourage them as well as chasten them by telling them that they are still his people. And that, again, is very much in line with Hosea's experience with his wife Gomer. He had taken her back, and remember, he bought her from slavery for 15 pieces of silver. And uh, he told Gomer that she would stay with him and he would stay with her. And that's precisely, I think, what the Lord is conveying to the people of Israel in these latter chapters that we'll be looking at tonight. Chapter 11, uh, though instead of talking about them being his wife, he now points out to the fact that he considers them to be his children, a very endearing portion of Scripture that we're going to look at here uh, as he begins chapter 11 by saying these things. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. But I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. So he's talking about how he cared for them, how he brought them up as children, as a a loving father would dote over his children, so he did with them. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. But the latter part of verse 1 is very, very interesting because it's actually quoted in the New Testament. He says again, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you have recalled any of our studies in the book of Matthew, that would be a familiar verse of scripture that you would find in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 15, where Matthew quotes Hosea, but nothing to do with the nation of Israel. His quoting of this passage has to do with the fact that he had sent Joseph and Mary into Egypt to protect them from the uh, killing of all of the children that would take place in uh, Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth. 
and they brought Jesus down to Egypt and the Lord told them to stay there until he lets them know that it's safe to return. And in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that they were told by the Lord to return because Herod was dead and that the danger was past. And he says there, that was in fulfillment of this prophecy in Hosea that out of Egypt I have called my son. Now if you look at this passage in chapter 11 of Hosea, I don't know that any one of us would have made that connection, but by the Spirit of God, Matthew does make that connection. It is not only a picture of uh, the relationship that God had with this, the nation of Israel as his children, but it also points to his relationship with his own dear son, and having called his children, he also called his son, Jesus, out of Egypt as well. And it tells us here that he taught Ephraim to walk in verse 3. And those of you who are either parents of very young children or, or grandparents, you know that this is something that it, it brings great joy when that child begins to take his or her first steps. And that's what God is conveying here with regard to his people, that they were taking their first step and he was right there encouraging, taking them by the arms, even putting cords around their shoulders to, to hold them upright so that they could, they could learn to walk. <laughs> um, I'm reminded that uh, sometimes it's probably a good idea for men and women who have very young children who are just new at walking, if they go to a public place like a shopping mall, probably wouldn't be a bad idea if they put them on a leash. In fact, I know that I've talked to our son about doing that with our granddaughter Annabelle, who loves to run around all over the place, and uh, it's kind of fun, comical to watch that. But God is here saying how much it pleased him to raise them up as his children. So it's a beautiful picture, an imagery, not of an adulterous wife, but of a child that he loves dearly. Well, verse 5 says, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be king, because they refused to repent. Now, they had been doing business with Egypt and with Assyria. In fact, when Assyria began bringing their armies into the northern area of Israel, the Israeli king turned to the nation of Israel for help, of Egypt for help, but they refused to give it to him. They weren't able to help him. Then the king of Israel tried to buy his way into a period of peace with the Assyrian king. So he was very, very much in favor of going to the neighboring nations to try to arrange for a peace instead of going to his God. And that's the complaint that God is speaking of here in verse 5. Again, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. God is making it so very, very plain that they are going to succumb to the invasion of the Assyrian forces and the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, will be their king. He says in verse 6, And a sword shall slash his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. So it's only mouthing the words. They speak with their lips, speaking the praises of their God, but he's so far from them in their hearts. 
And that is something that Jesus, remember, complained about with regard to the scribes and Pharisees. They, and Paul mentioned it. They had a zeal for God, but they denied the power thereof. And the people who were following after them were being blindly led into the ditch. And that's what happens when the blind are leading the blind. They both will fall into the ditch. Well, he tells us in verse 7 again, my people are bent on backsliding from me. That again is the second time that God refers to the fact that they are a backsliding people. They've drifted away. They've turned from their God. They are deliberately not wanting to serve him wholeheartedly. In other places, he remember, you remember he said that they were half-baked, uh, not hot nor cold. And Jesus tells the church in the book of Revelation, one of the churches that he addressed in that same way by saying, you're neither hot nor cold, and because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. He does not want a lukewarm church. He does not want a lukewarm people who are called by him to be their God. And that is a problem, because that's exactly what they were doing. They were turning away. They were backsliding. And though they called him the Most High, they didn't exalt him as such. Well, verse 8 continues now to talk about his unfailing love. Listen to what he says. He says, in a very much appealing statement, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboam? My heart turns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. God is asking these questions. How could it be that you would think I might really give you up altogether? That's not going to happen. There are many today in the church that are talking about a theology that is absolutely in error. It is a theology that is named replacement theology, where the church has replaced the nation of Israel, the ten lost tribes. They are not lost. God knows where they are. And he says here, so very, very matter-of-factly, that he will not, he will not leave them in this state of rebellion. He asks again, read carefully, verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? And again in verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. Now, man might say, well, they're not worth keeping. In fact, you may remember that in one of the previous chapters, we read where God said, let them alone. I'm done with them. It was appearing that God was just giving up on his nation. But that wasn't permanent. It never has been. He has always intended to bring them back to the land, to restore them, to become his wife again, just as Hosea took Gomer back, so it will be that God will take Israel back. I'd also like you to take note of the fact that in verse 8, he talks about two cities, Adma and Zeboim. Now, those are rather obscure communities 
that are only mentioned in this context, in only one place. They're inferred in Genesis, in chapter 19, where it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities that existed along with them in that valley when God brought judgment against those cities and destroyed them. That happens to be the region of where we now have the Dead Sea. And there are archaeologists who have said, you're never going to find the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they just simply didn't exist. Well, quite frankly, they may be true in their statement that you may never find Sodom and Gomorrah, but they did indeed exist. And I believe they existed precisely where the sea that we call the Dead Sea is currently. In fact, there have been some indications that it appears that there may be remnants of communities in the lower depths of the Dead Sea. They haven't conclusively determined that, but I believe that they're there. But it's not just those two cities. Sodom and Gomorrah were only two of more than two cities that were in that region, in that valley that was once a very plush place that Lot was attracted to, you may remember. Those other cities that are mentioned here by Hosea, Adma, and Zeboam are only mentioned elsewhere in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23, where Moses talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in that passage and includes the names of those two cities. And here, Hosea is, because he's well-versed in the Old Testament Pentateuch scriptures, he reminds us that those two cities were destroyed by the Lord, and he uses them here in this example of that which he would not do again. He destroyed them, but he's asking, how can I make you, Israel, like Adma or like Zeboam? I will not do it because my heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Look at the heart of God in this passage. That, again, is unfailing love. Verse 10 continues to complain, though, that they shall walk after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion when he roars, when his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. And take note of the fact that again in verse 10 we just read, they shall walk after the Lord, he will roar like an, a lion when he roars, and then his sons shall come trembling from the west. Well, if you look at chapter 10 in the book of Revelation, read with me, beginning with verse 1, where John says this, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set in his right foot, he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. 
Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and all things that are in it, the earth and all things that are in it, the sea and all things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Hosea is one of those servants. He's coming with a roaring, like a lion, sound. He's coming to reign. He's coming to complete the work that he has promised he will do. And this is an introduction from chapter 10 of the various bowls of judgment that will be poured out on the nations in the last days of the tribulation. That is when these people, the people of God, the Israelites, will recognize that he is who he said he is. Because when he comes to set his feet upon Mount Zion, they will see him standing on Mount Zion and they will worship him there as their God. That will be in fulfillment of all that he has promised, both in this passage, in other places, in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. He's coming again. He's coming to reign. He's coming to judge. He's coming to redeem his people Israel. And they will be gathered together and they will see him. They'll come trembling, mourning when they see him standing there. And then they will ask him, what are the wounds in the hands and your feet? And he says, those are the wounds that I received at the hands of my friends. Zechariah chapter 12. Here in Hosea, they will come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. He will restore them to their land once again. Now, verse 12 of chapter 11 begins to bring back into focus the judgment that is coming, God's charge against Ephraim, which is Israel, and it really follows with what comes after that verse of 12 into chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. So I'm going to be reading from verse 12 uh, for a short ways into chapter 12 here. He says in verse 12 of chapter 11, Ephraim has encircled me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Now there's a bit of a difference in translations here that I want to try to remedy because they're so different they seem like opposing thoughts my translation I'm using the New King James introduces that portion that I just read of verse 12 in the middle of the verse with the word but that's significant it's not in some of the other translations as it is here so the implication is if that word is indeed in the original language it sets a contrast between Ephraim, mentioned in the first part of the verse, and Judah, mentioned in the second part of the verse. So that's why my translation says, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Now again, in some of your translations, it says Judah, instead of still walks with God, wanders from God. And there is Good reason for both of those translations to be accurate because the word that we translate sometimes with is also translated sometimes from, from the Hebrew to the English, and it just happens to be contextual, that which what 
it, that's what determines whether we use the one word or the other. The key word is the word but. And because the word but is there, then I think it's safe to say that this particular translation that I'm using is probably the more accurate. It really doesn't make any difference in the end because Judah will ultimately be judged. But over and over again, we have seen that Hosea has mentioned Judah, and every time he has mentioned Judah, he gives Judah as an exception to the judgment that's about to come to the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes. I think he's following that pattern here. So again, verse 12 says, Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. And yes, he is faithful. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. You ever try to catch the wind? Kind of an impossibility, isn't it? The wind will slip right through your hands. You can feel the wind. You can feel the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. That's, by the way, one of the famous uh, statements of Billy Graham talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, you can't see the wind. You can feel the wind, but the wind just has evidence that it's there, but you don't see it. You can't per per perceive it except by the fact that you can feel it when it blows. Same idea with the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's talking about here. The wind here is just a, a, uh, a picture of that which Ephraim is seeking after and it's slipping out of his hands because he can't hold on to it. But he says, he daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried to Egypt. In other words, he's spent a lot of money in buying friendship with Assyria. He's not going to be able to take advantage of that. The Assyrians will indeed still continue their plans to invade. There's no stopping that. But they're also bringing oil down to Egypt to conduct business with Egypt to try to persuade the Egyptians to help them. And again, that effort fails. But he says in verse 2, even though they are doing that, the Lord also brings a charge against Judah now and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deeds, he will recompense him. Now he's including Judah here because Judah is also doing exactly the same thing that Israel has been doing. Try to buy their friendship with other nations. It's not going to work. But notice that he changes from referencing just Ephraim or just Judah here in this passage in chapter 12, verse 2, and says, I will punish Jacob. Now, that's a reference to the entire nation of Israel. Jacob was the father of all 12 tribes. His name was originally Jacob, but God changed it to Israel. And now, Hosea is going to kind of give us a brief overview of the history of this patriarch, Jacob. He says, I will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deeds, he will recompense him. And then he says in verse 3, he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb. And that's a reference to, of course, when Jacob and Esau were born. Remember, Isaac and Rebekah were married. Isaac is Abraham's son, and he and Rebekah took a long time before they were able to have children, about 40 years. 
But they finally were able to conceive. She was. And when she did, after the pregnancy proceeded, they discovered that there must be something going on in her womb because it was a very, very difficult pregnancy. And when she cried out to the Lord, the angel of the Lord spoke to her and explained to her that what is going on in your womb is that there are two nations in your womb. So that meant that she's got twins. And he told her that one of those, the one who was born after, will rule over the other. And that's interesting. When Esau was born, he was the first one to come out, and he was very full of red hair. And so they called him Esau, which means red or hairy. But as he came out of the womb, the, the nurse noticed that the second baby grabbed onto the heel of the first baby. As he was coming out of the womb, he was holding on to Esau's heel. And so they named him Jacob, which means heel catcher or usurper. Heel catcher is a great name for him because that's exactly what he did and that's exactly what he was. There's no way of looking at the story in the book of Genesis of Jacob and all of the various things that he did and allowed to happen during his lifetime that would lead one to think that he was a godly man. He was not really a very good person. He was a deceiver right from the very beginning. Early on, he was a mother's boy. He stayed at home. Rebecca loved him. Isaac, on the other hand, preferred Esau, primarily because Esau was a hunter and Isaac loved the fresh game that Esau always brought to the table. Well, that created a real problem in the family. But one day, Esau went out hunting and he spent a long day, all day long, worn out, he comes back and in the meantime, Jacob is cooking a very flavorable stew. And, and Esau smells that savory aroma of the fresh stew that Jacob has been making and he's so hungry, so weary, so famished, he says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some of that stew if you let me have the birthright. Now, what's a birthright to me? I'm, I'm going to die, Esau said. So Jacob said, okay, then let's do that deal. And Esau said, yes. Esau got the stew. Jacob got the right of the firstborn. That may not sound big, but in that culture, that was huge. And that was one of the many deceptions that Jacob ultimately pulled off. He deceived his father into thinking that he was Esau. He was not. He fooled his father, who was blind at the time. So all of those things created a real tension in the family. So much so that when Esau found out that not only had Jacob taken his firstborn rights, but also took away the blessing from Isaac. That was a very, very terrible thing for him. He had nothing left as a firstborn. It was all taken from him, and he was so angry, he wanted to kill Jacob. And of course, when Rebecca found out, Rebecca sent Jacob off into her uh, cousin's uh, or uncle's territory in Padan Aram, east of where they were located, and he sent him away to protect him and said to him, 
get a wife there. Well, he finally ended up in Padanaram and met up with Laban, Rebecca's uncle, and he had daughters. One of them, Leah, the oldest, the other was Rachel. Rachel was beautiful, and he fell in love with her. Love at first sight. It was obvious that that's the one he would love to marry. So he was willing then to work for Laban, and he found favor in Laban's eyes to the point where Laban finally came to him and said, Hey, look, I don't want you to work for free. Tell me what you want for my wages. And he said, Give me Rachel to be my wife, and I'll work for you for seven years. Deal. So he's got the promise of Rachel, and he works for seven years. And it's not likely that he waited to marry for that seven years. The marriage probably took place much earlier on. But there was a catch. On the night of the wedding, after one long day of festivities, Jacob goes into his tent. And he goes into his bride to consummate the wedding. But you all know the story. It wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. And he didn't find out about it until the light of the morning. And he was furious. What have you done to me? He calls out to Laban. Laban deceived him. Touche, Jacob, you got one on you. Like you've been doing to everybody else, somebody just got back at you. But that's not the end of the story. There was more and more and more deception throughout the 14 years that he ultimately had to work for Laban and then another five or six years beyond that. Finally, he's able to leave in a hurry, secretly, with Leah and Rachel and their 11 children and the concubines and a couple of Laban's idols. They make their way almost to the land of Canaan, back to where Isaac and Rebekah still were living. Laban catches up with him and threatens him, but God warned Laban in a dream, don't you touch him. And he didn't. He was willing to listen to God. But it's interesting, in all of that, finally we find Jacob coming back to his homeland, but he's still got a problem. He still has to face Esau. And while he's waiting to make a decision on how to approach this problem, he gets word that Esau is on his way toward him with 200 armed men. Jacob thought, we're dead. So he made a plan. Again, the deceiver is at work. He's sending out all kinds of gifts toward Esau and his men. Flocks and herds and all kinds of wonderful gifts that he was a very wealthy man that he could afford to send before him. Finally, they come together. But before they do, there's a night that Jacob spends all by himself. He sends everybody over the river to the other side of the river and he alone stays on the eastern side of the river Jabbok. And it's there that we're told Jacob wrestled with God. I know I belabored the story a bit because, but it is so important. What we're seeing here as Hosea is outlining these simple events in just a few verses. He's conveying to us that there's a connection with Jacob and his story and the nation of Israel and their story. God was there when they were first become a nation. They were deceivers, just like Jacob had become a deceiver. They deceived 
as many times as they could, and they lived in that deception over and over and over again. Yet God still continued to call them and wanted them to repent. They would not, so he judged them. Now we find Jacob in a very interesting situation where he's all by himself, with the exception of one other person who shows on the scene. That other person happens to be spoken of in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Whenever we see, almost whenever we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Most conservative theologians would argue that point very, very matter-of-factly. And it appears that that is so because Jacob says, I wrestled with God. And that's exactly what ends up happening. You may remember in uh, the Genesis account in chapter 35, Jacob wrestled with God, with the angel of the Lord, all night long. Until finally, he's very, very weary and he's holding on and will not let go. And the angel of the Lord said to him, let me go. And he said, I will not unless you bless me. And it tells us there that Jacob prevailed. And you think, wow, Jacob was able to win the wrestling match with God himself. Well, that's not exactly what is done or was done there. And it's not until we read Hosea that we really find out what is at least implied in that particular event. Again, Going back to Hosea now, reading verse 3, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, that's the first part of the verse, and in his strength he struggled with God. Now in verse 4, it gives us something of some detail that is not given elsewhere. Listen up closely. He says, yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He wept and sought favor. In other words, he was broken. He was finally coming to that place where he no longer was Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the heel catcher. But he has now become, after this long night with the Lord, he has become Israel, the governed by God. And that's exactly what the angel of the Lord tells him in that event. You will no longer be known as Jacob, but you will be known as Israel. So in verse 4, Hosea gives us that little bit of a detail as to how it was that Jacob prevailed because he humbled himself. He came to that place of submission. That's what God wants from all of us. Submission. Submit yourselves to the Lord. Humble yourselves and submit yourselves to Him. And when you do, the enemy will flee. James chapter 5. All of us know the need for submission. All of us sing the song, I submit to you. All of us sing those songs of loving appreciation for God's reigning over us. And we ask Him to do so. But one of the things we need to be very careful of is not to just voice that from our lips, but it has nothing on us. It doesn't impact our lives. It doesn't affect our heart toward Him. We would be like the Israelites 
when they were bent on backsliding from me, though they called to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. I surrender all, Lord. Mean it when you sing it. Apply it in your daily living. Make sure we all must do this. This is something that we need to take home and allow these words to sink into our very souls. It is Him and Him alone that is to be exalted. Let no other stand in the way of that in our lives. May it be so. So again in verse 4, He struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. And that is a reference later in Jacob's life, when Jacob finally came back into the land, and he ultimately went to Bethel, which is where he built an altar, which is where he laid down to sleep and saw the ladder with angels ascending and descending into heaven on his way to Laban's house. Now on his way back into the land, he comes to that very place, he builds an altar, and he becomes a very holy site in the nation of Israel. Now fast forward from Jacob's time to the time of the nation of Israel in the land, the twelve tribes having been divided, and the ten northern tribes about to receive the judgment of God by the Assyrian forces coming in to attack their land, their holy place of Bethel had become a worship center of the Baal gods of the Canaanites, where the calf had been placed, where they were offering up sacrifices to those false gods. Bethel, which once was a holy place, the house of God, was now the house of the Baals. Verse 7, or rather verse 6 says, So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. This is God's plea to them. Return, come back. You can still be delivered. But they would not. He says in verse 4, You're a cunning Canaanite or merchant, is a good translation as well. You're a cunning merchant. You know how to make some money. Deceit is a bit, an issue with, remember it was with Jacob, it's an issue with the nation of Israel. Deceitful scales are in his hands. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I've become rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. In other words, they're proud of their espionage. They're proud of their deceitfulness. They're proud of the way that they've earned their money that really was not a way that God had prescribed. And that is a sin that they would not acknowledge, even though they said, there is no iniquity that is sin in me. Oh, yes, there was. You know, oftentimes we see people who think nothing of their sin. They don't even think of it as though it is sin. And many people have just completely eliminated the word sin from their vocabulary. Many in the church don't agree with the issue of sin that the Word of God makes. Because the Word of God says sin is going to result in death. And so they will not accept those who would preach this hard message 
but I want you to know it's in the Word of God. And since it's in the Word of God, it will be proclaimed in this pulpit. And also, what will also be proclaimed is God's mercy and God's grace and God's, in spite of judgment, God's willingness to pour out His love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's a given. But He does not overlook sin. That's also true. Verse 9 says, But I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. That's a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, where they built little tents, if you would, temporary dwelling places, where they would just celebrate God's mercy and grace and help in the wilderness over those many, many years in the wilderness. He says, I'm going to make you dwell in tents again, but it won't be a happy time. It's because he's going to bring them out of that land that he had given them. And they will be dispersed among the Gentile nations. Verse 10 says, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Look at how he's spoken to them. So often the prophets communicated his desire to help them, to, to save them, to love them, to nurture them. He gave them many, many visions and give, given over many, many years several different symbolic things that were done by the prophets. Prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah the, and Hosea in his relationship with Gomer, his adulterous wife. Those were symbols of what God wanted the people to know that it represented him, but they would not listen. After all that he had done, they still would not listen. And then in verse 11, Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, they should not have been doing so. Indeed, their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. He's going to overturn all of those altars that they had set up because they were not altars to God. God had one altar for them to observe and offer sacrifices on, and that is the altar that was in Jerusalem. They had built many, many altars, and God saying, they'll all be destroyed, and they were. Finally, in verse 12, he says, Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse, and for a wife he tended sheep. He's talking about Jacob, the individual the founder of the nation, Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Actually, that was Padan Aram. It was eastward, not northward. Assyria, Syria now is north and east of, of Israel. There's a portion of Syria that's on the east. And in that day, there was a, an extension of what was then known as Syria that extended all the way to the Euphrates River. And it was there that Padan Aram was located where Laban was. And as a matter of fact, that's why oftentimes we see in the scripture that Jacob is referred to as a Syrian. Well, he lived in Syria, Padan Aram, and in many of your translations, instead of the word Syria, you have the word translated probably correctly, Aram, A-R-A-M. So in that case, what we're seeing is he's talking about Jacob having fled from Esau into Padan Aram, and he served for a spouse, a wife. And for a wife, he tended sheep. That's what he did. Again, we discussed that thoroughly in just a few 
many minutes ago. Now, in verse 13, he says, By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. That's a reference to Joseph. I mean, to uh, Moses, by the way. And by a prophet, he was preserved. Moses delivered the people from the hands of the Egyptians. He says, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. Again, what you're seeing here is Hosea going back and forth between the promise of restoration and the need for judgment that God had to do in order for the people of Israel to come to the right place. It would be a matter of many, many years. It still has not yet been fully complete. But there is a return to the nation of Israel, and it's not just the tribe of Judah, it's all of the tribes that will ultimately return to the land, and that is continuing to take place in this present day. It is being fulfilled in our day. And friends, all the scriptures that speak of those last days are being fulfilled. As we look out and we see the very, very many things that God is doing around the world, and in especially the Middle East, we're seeing the stage being set. And I believe the final stage, a final act is about to open, and that's when we see the hand of God move once again on his people. We'll be talking more about that on Sunday morning, so I'm hoping that you'll be able to join us then as we study the book of Second Thessalonians and we enter into that second part of chapter 2 where we are. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. God bless and grace and peace.